Welcome to the Harvard and Tech Seattle Podcast, Episode 5, and I'm your host, Stephen Harper. Today's guest is Aran Khanna. Aran Khanna is a Harvard College computer science and math graduate whose work focuses on understanding the consequences of the increasing role of technology in our lives, particularly in the realm of user control and technology platforms. At Harvard, Aran built tools that empower users to discover for themselves the consequences of the digital footprint they are leaving. Most notably, his Marauder's Map tool demonstrated the dangers of default location sharing in Facebook Messenger, which spurred Facebook to remove the feature from Messenger. It also prompted Facebook to rescind Aran's internship offer, raising questions about how social media companies respond to privacy issues. Most recently, Aran left Amazon Web Services' AI team, where he worked on publishing open-source machine learning research to build a startup focused on helping businesses fight predatory cloud service pricing by automating the prediction, purchase, and resale commitment contracts for cloud resources. Welcome to the show, Aran. Well, thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I know you're really busy, so I, I'm, I'm glad you took some time out of your very busy day to you know, come into the podcast. Well, anytime. I, uh, I've listened to a few of the episodes, and I really enjoy what you're doing here. So Aww. it's an absolute treat to be on. Oh, it's so flattering. So appreciate it. So let's just uh, jump right into it. What got you interested in tech? Well, so it's actually quite funny, and it's really tied up uh, in my Harvard experience. When I came to Harvard, uh, surprisingly, I was really into biology and biotech, very different sort of technology. And I was much more familiar with you know, micropipettes and uh, different sorts of assays and columns versus the, the traditional computer science primitives that you learn there. So what you know really drew my interest was I took CS50 as a freshman, and as I was playing around with different problem sets, trying to build stuff on my own on the side, I started to realize that there was just so much more power in computer technology than in the biology that I was sort of used to playing around with from my background doing things like research in high school. And I realized, you know, really the core of it for me was the fact that if you had a question that you wanted to answer, an idea you wanted to test out, you could probably code up and get an answer or, you know, some feedback within an hour Whereas in you know the biological research space, when I was doing work there, it took me two weeks to you know two months to get a answer back if I wanted to test if you know a certain plasmid would make cyan cyanobacteria run a little bit more efficiently with their you know sugar conversion process. I think the power of that sort of process just being in your hands and so malleable and so quick to actually iterate on was something that I just became addicted to. And, you know, I'm a really a builder at heart. And I think that that really spoke to me. And, you know, from that first semester taking CS50, I sort of pivoted a lot of my interests around what would be interesting to learn to help me build more things, work in a way that I could have more impact than the path that I was on originally. And I really saw technology as the avenue to do that. And that was really something that Throughout the, my four years in Harvard, I became more and more certain of as I did more projects and actually really had those projects to reach a number of people by the time that I had left Harvard. Awesome. So the next question, I, I think you were 
maybe alluding to it or maybe a little bit indirect about it. But so how would you say your experience at Harvard influenced you to be who you are now? Yeah, well, something that I think Harvard did incredibly well, you know, I think is emblematic specifically of the education you get there is the incredible breadth of different subjects and topics that you not only have the flexibility to explore, but you're encouraged to explore. And I think a big part of who I am today is really a function of the fact that in college, I was able to not just be, you know, streamlined once I figured out I liked CS, streamlined down a very specific CS path. I was actually able to go and take theoretical math classes, take acting classes, you know, take classes around art. And, you know, one of my favorite experiences was going through the Harvard Art Museums for classes that I was taking there and really understanding, you know, that a lot of these things that we end up working on in the real world don't exist in a silo. There's an incredible amount of interrelatedness. And I think a lot of my work in the research side at Harvard on society and technology really speaks to the fact that there is a, a necessary place for that breadth of education in shaping your understanding of the world and the way that you build stuff to interact with the world. I hope that wasn't too abstract, but you know, I think that that was really one of the key things that I think Harvard gave me was that real breadth of, of different sorts of fields and subjects that I was able to explore. So you said you like to build things. So while at Harvard, what was something you were most proud of building? Well, I think that would have to be the one that got me in the most trouble, which was my Marauder's Map project, uh, which I built junior year. I was The story there was, I was actually taking a class with Latanya Sweeney, who is now the, not the headmaster, the resident dean is what they're calling it now, of Courier House. And she taught this class called Privacy and Technology with Jim Waldo probably one of my favorite classes because it really explored the intersection of technology and society uh, and really kind of took the blanket off the uh, real, you know, thorny issues around user data and privacy that came with the broad adoption of services like social media. Um, and, you know, through that class, I, I learned to really look at a lot of the platforms that came to really dominate uh, myself and my classmates' lives throughout the years that I was in college, things like Venmo, you know, Facebook Messenger, uh, a litany of other sort of social media platforms, um, in a way where I was much more critical, not of the service that was provided on the face, but the unintended consequences of some of the decisions that those services were making. So, um, when I kind of in parallel was actually applying to an internship at Facebook, I started to take that lens and look at some of their products. And I realized that uh, at the time, Facebook Messenger actually was by default uh, attaching people's locations to every message they sent um, in the platform. And, you know, you learn a few different things. I actually learned the psychology in class at Harvard around the power of defaults. Uh, we read, you know, some behavioral uh, psychology literature, thinking fast and slow. Um, and when I started kind of putting those pieces together and realizing that, hey, one of the primary ways that I'm communicating, not just with my friends around Harvard, but my friends all around Boston was Facebook Messenger. And there was a massive volume of messages that I was sending out and receiving all the time. I started to think about what is the unintended consequence of this default that they kind of flipped on here? And can I actually dig into this data and start to visualize and understand that. So I actually built this program, it was a Chrome extension that 
lived in the browser. Anyone could download it. It was completely open source. It was, you know, by all intents and purposes, a research project where it basically did what you could do with the pencil and paper, sucked in all of that location data being sent to you and being sent from you through the Facebook Messenger platform and just plotted it on a map. Uh, and I was a little cheeky about it. I called it Marauder's Map because it kind of reminded me of Harry Potter. And I think a lot of people think that, uh, you know, the Harvard dorms and the cafeterias look like the Harry Potter dining halls and, and great halls. So I, I thought the fit was pretty good there and the story was was sort of compelling. I had released that basically the summer before, you know, right at the beginning of the summer as I was going out to start my internship at Facebook. And literally the Friday before I was supposed to start, I was supposed to start Monday, they called me up and said, hey, great project, by the way, you're fired. And I think that was sort of a, a turning point for me. And I started to realize that this idea that a lot of these platforms are acting in the best interest of users is an illusion. And I think it shaped a lot of what I'm doing in my career right now and, and what I did in my career from that point, where I saw the rise of a lot of these platforms and a lot of you know real mis misalignments of incentives between what is best for the end user and what is best for the business. And I think that that you know, that project, which obviously after getting fired, I wrote about it and did a TED talk about it and got a whole lot of attention, probably rightly so, given how Facebook handled the situation. It, it really started to, you know, show me some of the fundamental issues with very large tech platforms in society and the misalignments they have with the folks who are actually using them. Yeah, I also did something to, to the Venmo folks because they were they had a similar issue with, with defaults. And I wrote a little Chrome extension there to basically suck in all of the, the payments data going back and forth. But luckily this time, you know, Latanya, who is the professor who taught the privacy and technology class, actually helped me turn that into an academic paper. So it had a little bit more of a veneer of, of legitimacy around it. But I think, you know, a lot of these problems that I was pointing out in 2015, they're still not corrected in full today. They're, I think, in many ways, much bigger today. And there's a lot more problems that this kind of fundamental principal agent problem between platforms and their users is really bringing up in society. I think we see that all around nowadays. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing. What would you say is a common security issue that you still see present since then? Well, so I think on the privacy front, you still have a lot of issues around the defaults, like especially sharing defaults in a number of different platforms today. And I think that's a pervasive issue. You have this kind of fundamental misalignment between growth where, you know, platforms want to actually have users share as much data and activity publicly as possible to draw in other users. And then obviously the fundamental privacy rights of those end users, but also a lot of issues around kind of financial incentives now, especially as a lot of these platforms have started to become, you know, micro economies in and of themselves. So we saw just recently, you know, things around app store fees and, and pricing there. We see a lot of things around monetization on different platforms like Instagram and YouTube. And I think we, we really expanded beyond the realm of just privacy and security issues being front and center to really financial issues and users' livelihoods being, you know, wrapped up with the same issue of principal agent problems. I think that that's, that's sort of a transition, especially with COVID and the pandemic, that's happened really quickly. And I was rather surprised to see. Uh, it's actually something that I'm focused on solving at the current company that I just started. But there's, I think on the security side, especially with things like machine learning coming out, there's a lot of second order effects that 
you know, I don't think there's really been a full realization of that in society, even if there is, you know, potentially innocuous data that these platforms are sharing about folks or on the face of it, innocuous data, when coupled with things like very advanced machine learning models, uh, it can actually lead to you know, very sensitive information about customers being in or users being inferred. You know, one example that I like to cite from my time in machine learning research, where I was doing a lot of image recognition and image interpretation models, uh, was the fact that someone actually scraped a bunch of images off of one of these dating apps, I believe it was Tinder, and was able to train a model where looking at a set of photos of someone, fairly innocuous photos, they're actually with a high degree of confidence able to determine the sexual orientation of that person. Now, the research in and of itself might might be a little bit flawed. It was just sort of a toy project. But if I think about sort of the limit of where a lot of this stuff is going, I think there's some real fundamental issues with second order effects of a lot of this data being out there and hosted and distributed by these platforms that really just don't have the incentive to lock a lot of this down. Mm. What would you say would be some good incentives for them to lock it down? Well, you know, my TED talk that I that I did was was really focused on the fact that regulation to a large degree is, is often the best incentive here because, you know, you have a lot of these natural incentives to get users to share more and this fundamental sort of misalignment where if you have a government agency putting an explicit financial incentive to these platforms to cut out the bad behavior, it becomes a much easier calculus for them. It's harder to get in practice than in theory. But I think what's heartening is the fact that if you look at, you know, the, even the hearings that Congress is having, and you know, the regulators that are being appointed now, it seems like there's actually appetite to do something. And, you know, it's taken over half a decade since, since this has really started to become a, a major problem, you know, even, even more than that. But I think now we're actually seeing appetite to do something about it, which is actually very heartening. Yeah, well, I'm optimistic and it sounds like you are as well. Yes, definitely uh, better to be optimistic and a little bit paranoid, but but there towards the side of optimism than than purely cynical and pessimistic. True. Agreed. Taking a step back. So what would you say contributed to your success? Well, I, I don't know if, I, if I've been successful yet, but I think the the wins and losses, but mainly the wins in my career are really due to developing very strong principles and obviously evolving those principles. But, you know, principles around maximizing benefit to users of your technology, earning customer and user trust. These are sort of fundamental things that you know, I believe are really important when you're working on something to put front and center. And I think a lot of my projects that I've done, the ones that I was just talking about, speak to those principles. And you know, especially when you're young and starting out in the world in your career, you, know, you don't really have many proof points behind you other than obviously your education and, and what's in your head in terms of what you've learned. Aside from that, coming in, I think, with a strong set of principles around how you operate is really the best thing you can do. Because most of this is luck anyways, right? Whether you're very successful or not, a lot of it comes down to, are you in the right place at the right time with the right opportunities? But I think having a core set of principles by which you operate maximizes the likelihood when those opportunities do arise that you're able to seize them and do the right thing with them that is best for you and the people that you serve over the long term. Gotcha. So you say principles. Do you mind sharing those? I have a, a few core ones that, that I, I ascribe to. You know, One of the big ones for me is earning user and customer trust. 
when you're out there trying to you know build something or deliver a service i think one of the core things that you have to keep in mind is you know, who are your stakeholders how do you make sure that you're able to earn their trust and keep their trust and really surprise and delight them but obviously do that in a way where they're able to understand why there's alignment and why you're acting in their best interests and trust you to do that. I think another thing that's core to, you know, how I've operated to date is this idea of extreme ownership, which came from a book I read by Jocko Willing. I love that book. Where, it's a great book. Yeah, wonderful book. And I think it's such a good principle because if you think about, you know, really anything in, you know, the modern day is, especially in technology, is really boil it down to, you know, small teams moving fast. And I think in a small team, this principle of extreme ownership is something that fundamental to that team functioning well and delivering the best product that it possibly can or the best service that it possibly can. So this idea of extreme ownership is something that I definitely ascribe to and I think is incredibly useful as a broad sense of a broad overarching principle of how you operate day to day. I have a few more, but I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to bog down the interview talking philosophy. No, I mean, we're all for philosophy as well. Because, I mean, t there's tech, so you can go into, like, the, the nitty-gritty as well. But if you take a step back, there is a philosophy to how we do our jobs or how we do whatever it is that we need to do to change the world. So there is a philosophy behind it. So it's there are other principles you want to share, then that's great. But there is another question about lessons you want to share, so you don't have to do that now, maybe later. You know, you bring up the point that, that it's important to have a philosophy, um, you know, as you're going around doing these things. And I think especially if you're working at, you know, a large technology company or even doing a startup where you could potentially be scaling up and reaching hundreds of users over the course, thousands of users, millions of users over the course of a year or two. You know, it's important to really understand that you are in a position to make impact and having a core set of principles, having a philosophy, you know, understanding if there are second or third order effects, how do you rectify them and start thinking about that upfront? I think that's emblematic of kind of the new way that I see people, my peers thinking about technology as they build it versus I think what was present in the 2010s where you have people going and, you know, building a social network and, you know, throwing caution to the wind saying, look, we're just a small app. What's the worst that can happen? I think we've seen the worst that can happen and folks can really now start to think more about you know, what is the impact here? And does this really make sense? Is it in the best interest of all of the users and kind of the broader stakeholders around the table? Yeah. And another question that comes to mind is, is this ethical? Exactly. Or what is the moral, what is the moral findings behind this? Or I think that's only been more recent that there's been more thinking of the morals and ethics behind technology. And I found out that it's actually not a required class, but it seems like it's a very important question, whether say you have like a job offer given to you for a place that you find isn't so ethical. So is that something that you take because of all maybe the benefits or whatever reason that you have that would make your life better? But would the impact be what you want it to be? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely ran across this really in my first job out of college. I, I uh, after working for Facebook, I joined this smaller startup doing machine learning research and machine learning infrastructure. We were acquired into AWS to build out a lot of their machine learning tools. And I ended up leaving the company after we launched our, our services. But, you know, I think one of the things that 
was a big question mark in my head as we were developing things like computer vision services and you know on top of the technology that i was building people were developing things like facial recognition and selling it to you know agencies at that time like ice i really started to think about the ethics of what we were building and if it made sense and i think it's really easy especially in larger companies or even in small companies to just get caught up in the momentum and not think about these things and i think one of the things that I'm really heartened by is the fact that, you know, younger technologists, folks, you know, of my generation, I think are a lot more tuned to these problems. And, uh, you know, what I saw was people thinking about this stuff up front and people who were not okay with this, like some of the professors that I worked for, they're actually, you know, voting with their feet to leave, which I think is something that, you know, I hope to see more of as, especially now, you know, technology becomes such a central part of our lives and it becomes so centralized to a few large players. Agreed. So tell me about your company. So I'm sure I can come up with my own interpretation of what I think, but I'd rather hear from you on what, like, what was the inspiration behind your company? As I mentioned, you know, after that first startup I was working for, we went, got into AWS by way of acquisition and became sort of their deep learning team. I ended up actually working with a number of really large, like marquee customers of these services. And one of the key things that, you know, as we were sort of launching these services, I realized was the absolute massive complexity in, you know, pricing models that were being foist onto some of these large customers where they were basically building these large teams to go and deal with, um, you know, this massive complexity in pricing. And as I sort of worked through this and talked to a number of customers, including the person who essentially became my co-founder in this company who was running Apple's Cloud Center of Excellence, then running Splunk's Cloud Center of Excellence, we started to realize that just a massive number of analysts, data scientists, engineers who ended up being waylaid from their normal jobs to think about things like cash flow management and return on investment for different sorts of contracts or different sorts of cloud resources. And so as I sort of saw this problem evolve and talked with you know, folks like Daniel uh, over at Apple and then Splunk, we, we started to come away with this idea that, you know, a lot of this stuff could actually be automated on behalf of the customer. And instead of thinking about this as sort of a manual operations problem, you could think about this as a broader optimization problem. So we started to actually build a company around this idea of taking this process that was a, you know, four hour per week or four hour per day activity for engineering and operations teams and turning it into a four hour per quarter activity where we could do things on the back end, like share some of the risk between customers, um, enable them to put in high level financial constraints and do all of this automated purchasing for them on the back end, navigating a lot of the complexity that these platforms, essentially the cloud platforms in this case, are foisting onto their users. And I think I fundamentally see it in line with a lot of the other projects that I've built, which are really helping users understand the complexities of the platforms they use and then navigate them in a way that in the long term benefits them in a way that they just wouldn't have the resources or the ability to do as sort of a smaller player in this larger ecosystem. So it sounds like you were working at AWS and you noticed there was a discrepancy and then you went ahead and built out a solution to try and, you know, offset a lot of the the work that other developers or other teams have to do. So that's yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, they were basically making cloud engineers become financial engineers, and I thought there was a better way to do it. So 
you know, we really built this platform to fill that gap and, and try and make it so that a lot of the pricing and, you know, commitment contract complexities were boiled down and able to just be operated on by an end executive or a finance user or a DevOps user without this massive team and deep understanding of this highly complex platform behind them. Gotcha. Because, man, four hours a week, that's, that's major for multiple teams for like any software company. So I'm thinking like, wow. Yeah, even at, at Apple, they had a team of 60 folks that Daniel had built out. And, you know, when we were meeting up at reInvent, he's like, how do I, the next time I have to go and, you know, solve this problem for a company, not build out a team of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 folks that scales with the number of engineers basically in the company. For sure. So what lessons would you like to share with the audience so far? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the biggest lessons that I've learned are, are really around acting and building in the best interests of users and customers. And I think if you do that, then over the long term, you are guaranteed to have a good outcome. If you're aligning your incentives and the way that you're building with the best interests of the end users, the end stakeholders in your platforms. And that's something that I really, you know, ascribe to from the beginning of my career, even to the detriment of, you know, an internship at Facebook or whatever, I really stuck to my guns around trying to operate in the best interest of users. And I think that that's something that, you know, more and more so now, I don't think it was obvious originally in 2015, I think more and more so now you're seeing that people are starting to really understand a lot of the deleterious impacts that, you know, technology platforms can have and appreciate the platforms, the vendors, et cetera, that really are operating in their best interest and operating with a high degree of integrity. Uh, and I think over the long term, the returns to that are going to be much, much higher than sort of the short term returns to, you know, building something, not really thinking about all the stakeholders and maximizing for something uh, like profits over the near term. I think that's something that, you know, just even in my short career, I, I've seen that transition and have a fundamental belief that going forward, you know, especially with, you know, the big folks on ESG, for example, we're going to see that be, I think, a major part of what differentiates successful from unsuccessful companies and platforms over the long term. Great. So you were working at AWS and then you started working on your company reserved AI. What point did you quit? Did you already have like a good customer base or did you just go like, oh, this was a great idea. I'm just going to quit right now and just go full in on this. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'd actually been working with a number of these potential customers on the other side of the table as a vendor at AWS. I'd actually sold them, you know, cost management solutions or referred them to cost management partners and seen them fail again and again and again. And I think eventually, you know, after hearing enough of the same story, and having you know three or four folks who said, look, if you build this thing, I'll use it right away. I had sort of the confidence to step back to my role. And I think there were, like I was mentioning, there were some other factors that were in play at the time that were a good forcing function for me to step back and really work on this problem. And again, I think it, it's really one of those problems where I saw that the, the vendors themselves, AWS and, and even Azure to some degree, weren't going to solve this problem. They weren't going to, you know, there wasn't really an incentive there. It wasn't really a reasonable thing for them to go to the customers and figure out, you know, how to get them to commit the most to, to their platform. Like that's their objective function. That's what they need to do. So they weren't going to build a solution and 
and I don't think customers would adopt a solution that would basically say, hey, Azure is telling you how much to commit to Azure. You should trust Azure. Or AWS is telling you how much to commit to AWS. You should trust them. So because this gap existed, and I think I saw you know, a path in the near term to really get that into market and test it, felt confident enough to leave my role and actually pursue this uh, activity. And then obviously, you know, as we got more validation, we were actually able to go out to investors and raise some money and really accelerate this process. Wow. So you may, I know your company is focused on AWS for now. So are you hoping to expand out to other cloud services like say Azure? Yeah, we actually, we are on Azure as well. That's in a private beta where we're sort of releasing it in full in the next few months and then Google Cloud at the end of the summer, which is also sort of in a private alpha state right now. So what do you have planned in the future? I know we just said a little bit. You know, beyond just, just this company, which obviously there's near term and longer term goals for it. I think my perspective is with the way that technology and particularly technology platforms have been evolving and really growing to be very dominant parts of the overall digital economy and overall economy. One of the things that I want to work on and continue to work on is helping users, customers, stakeholders navigate these really dominant platforms. You know, I think you can see it in the work I'm doing at the company that I'm working on right now, Reserved. I think you can see it in the research I did around elucidating some of the user privacy issues with the consumer facing platforms. But I think there's just so much opportunity in that space going forward. And it is right in line with my beliefs around kind of leveling the playing field for customers, users, and stakeholders of these platforms. So I have a number of ideas. Um, I'm sure that over, over the next 10, 15 years, I'm going to be working on a lot of different ones. You know, for me, I think that's some of the most exciting stuff and the most impactful stuff given my background and my interests that, that I can do in technology and, and more broadly in society. Great. So was the transition from say a big company to a startup, like what was that like? Yeah. You know, I think that in a large company, what's really difficult to do is to, uh, and we talked a little bit about extreme ownership, but I think feel that sense of ownership, especially because you know, you tend to have a very specific box that you play in. So even if you have the drive to go and, you know, fix something that you see as misaligned on the marketing stack or uh, fix something that is being sold incorrectly on the sales side, you just don't have the ability to really go and do those things or even have your input heard kind of across the, the broad stack of how your product is sold. And I think that that is something that I was really looking for as I made the transition to a startup and really looking at how to maintain that sort of, you know, ability for someone to really have ownership across the whole stack of what they're building and delivering to a customer, you know, as the business scaled. I think, at, you know, we're at 16 people now, it's really easy for someone on the engineering team to actually go to a, a salesperson, right? And say, hey, you're selling this wrong. This is how you should be thinking about it and talking about it to our developer customers. And I think that that's really refreshing and something that as a function of just massive scale, you don't get. I think the other thing is the ability to just speak to customers. When you're in a larger company, it's very difficult to really get a unfiltered voice of the customer. I think something that's great about a startup is not only can you and are you encouraged to go and speak to a lot of different customers, get a lot of different inputs and opinions in an unfiltered manner, because there's no bureaucracy above you, because you have that 
sense of extreme ownership and you can actually operate in that way, you're able to be much more agile and respond and iterate a lot faster. And I think those are really the positive aspects of a small company. The negative aspects are obviously that you take on a lot more responsibility. Therefore, you have a lot more work, a lot more stress, you know, if you get stressed out by those sorts of things. But, you know, it's, it's just trade-off, right? If you want a, a nice paycheck, stability, not really having to worry about work after a certain time, I think those are the things that a big company is good for. And obviously, if you're in the right position, you know, potentially you can have some some really nice impact without having to work really hard to build the platform to enable you to get that that lever to do that impact, right? But I think in a startup, the good and the bad things are that you have all this autonomy, all this agency, but the world is sort of resting on your shoulders to some degree, and you have to be cognizant and aware of the difficulty and the stress that comes with that. So I think, you know, there's there's definitely trade-offs on both, and I think you can definitely make an impact in a startup. It's just that you have to build that platform and that lever that enables you to make the impact versus it just being given to you. True. It does sound like everything's on you because that's the point of a extreme ownership. Yeah. Yeah. With that, so you said it's stressful. So what do you do to manage your stress? And, you know, like say if there's something difficult, like uh, what do you do with a difficult situation? How do you manage that? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I learned from my first boss at that startup that was acquired by AWS is to, especially under a stressful situation, it's easy to make poor decisions. And I think that's the biggest issue with stress is that it actually impacts decision making. So something that I do pretty much every day is I go on a walk. I use a lot of time on the walk or time, you know, on a brief meditation to actually clear my head get a fresh perspective, think about things in a more structured sort of first principles way so that I'm really sure that the stress and sort of that that visceral emotional layer isn't actually playing into the underlying decision-making process. And I think that's really helpful because you can start to introspect and realize, oh, why am I actually feeling this stress? Is it any rational reason? Is, there, is it a reason that I can control? If it's not, why why do I care about it? Why am I stressed out about it, right? And I think that what's good about a startup is it actually forces you to, to develop those sorts of skills and mechanisms that regardless of where you end up working in the future, I think you can rely in, on those sorts of mechanisms to actually go back to ground yourself and really start to understand you know, what's in your control, what's not, what does it actually make sense for you to, to worry about versus not. And I think it, it sort of devoids the, the subjective reality from the emotional reality that you feel. It disconnects those two. Gotcha. Is there any, I know you're in a startup, so I was wondering if you had like a, a daily routine that you follow? <laughs> well, these, these days it's usually, you know, up by around 6 a.m. in the chair by 7 a.m. on Zoom calls, do a lunch, do a walk, meditate after kind of the first round of calls in the morning, and then start the, the afternoon calls. And once those are done, do hope, hopefully two hours, maybe three hours of work in the evening until dinner. So generally those are those are the weeks. And then I take a Saturday off and do a little bit of work Sunday afternoon. Gotcha. It does sound more balanced than like there's some startups where every day is like day one or something like that. So I was wondering, yeah, because it, it sounds like it's really stressful and that uh, at least as far as a startup. Yeah, it can be. I think, you know, you get into a rhythm, right? So I think you just got to make sure that rhythm is a healthy one. 
because at the end of the day it's a marathon and not a sprint and you're going to have some crazy nights where instead of you know being up to late answering emails you're up to 11 and then you have a call with india that goes till you know midnight but you have to probably pair that with a day that's a little bit less aggressive because if you're super stressed out if you're sleep deprived you're just not making good decisions and i think especially in an engineering led company in a in a company where you're making a lot of high leverage decisions and you know, each line of code really is a high leverage decision. You shouldn't be burning yourself out because you're just going to make poor decisions. You're not going to be operating in the best interests of your customers. You're not going to be using the right data. And I think that that's a bigger issue than the marginal hour of work being lost. Gotcha. So how can people find you? Yeah. So if people can either find me at arankana.com. Email is aran at arankana.com. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at arankana. And my company is reserved.ai. And you can find all the information about the company over there. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful getting to chat with you. Thanks for coming on to the show, Aran. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Thanks to Aran for coming on to the show. You can find us by email, LinkedIn, or Facebook at Harvard and Tech Seattle. Links will be in the show notes.